Hi everyone, I'm Lauren Good, senior writer at Wired, and you're listening to Wired's Gadget Lab podcast, where our group of tech writers and editors take you through the news you need to know about each week. And it's not just about gadgets, it's about the tools and apps and services that we use all the time and how they impact our lives. I'm joined as always by my co-host and senior associate editor, Ariel Pardes. Hello, and this week we are taking a closer look at the giant tech companies that make the products that impact our lives. Our own Natasha Tiku will join us on the show to tell us about the turmoil inside Google that's causing major disruption inside what was once considered one of the happiest companies in tech. Her story is the cover of Wired's September issue, and you are not going to want to miss it. But first, we have some news to go through. Ariel, would you like to start? Yeah. So, Lauren, you know that this is the year of the IPO. Absolutely, everyone's going public. I am too. I'm going public. Yes, me too. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen Uber and Lyft file IPOs. We've seen Slack and Pinterest and tons of other companies uh, filing to go public. The latest is WeWork, which filed its IPO paperwork this week. And it is... um, well, it's, uh, it, is, it is quite a document, I will say that. It's kind of amazing what some desks and coffee makers and Wi-Fi will get you. Seriously, Lauren, can I just read to you from the first page of the, the WeWork paperwork? And I quote, We dedicate this to the energy of we, greater than any one of us, but inside each of us. Ooh, Ooh. What are what is we smoking? Right. <laughs> we yeah, we should also note that WeWork has actually rebranded. Now it's the We Company, which mm. includes such spin-offs as We Live, which is their take on co-living spaces, mm-hmm. aka dorms. We Grow, mm-hmm. which is an entrepreneurship focused elementary school idea, AKA kindergarten. And Rise by We, which is the future of the gym. Uh Equinox? Um <laughs> Equinox is canceled. Um, so WeWork is valued at nearly $50 billion, which is an insane amount of money. And according to its paperwork, the co-working spaces exist in over 120 cities, which adds up to over 600,000 workstations around the world. Um, and its IPO forms are kind of interesting. So these get filed to the SEC before a company goes public, and they should be a window into the inner workings of a company. But in this case, the forms are just baffling it's it's over a hundred pages that uh seem to offer very little insight into what this company is and how it's supposed to make money and how it's structured at at one point uh the paperwork describes the company mission as quote elevating the world's consciousness wow which is just just remarkable (laughs) take notes for my own prospectus when i personally go public yeah that's how you get to 50 billion so my question is this is WeWork a technology company? Ooh, great question. So I would say no. Um, and in fact, they're not a Silicon Valley company either. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it, as far as I can tell, they're they're not a technology company, but they're sort of styling themselves like a technology company because this is how you get the money. And the way they've raised VC funding is very much in the same style as something like, say like Airbnb, um, where they're not really doing anything high tech. In fact, all of their business is real estate, um, for now at least. Uh, but they've sort of followed this model where you scoop up tons and tons of VC funding, you you sort of inflate your valuation, and then you go public, and then who knows? I mean, they're not profitable is another thing we should add. <laughs> the company is just hemorrhaging money. Um, which seems to be the tech way. So, <laughs> right, yeah, after Uber's earnings, it certainly seems that way. Yeah. What's interesting about this is the way that the Wii company is 
to your point, a real estate company positioning itself in some ways as a tech company. But then you see that the power really is in the real estate for some of these companies. Mm-hmm. Like look at a company like Amazon, which is a tech company. It's an e-commerce company. It's a retailer. But a lot of its power lies in its warehouses, its film centers, its distribution. And then, of course, it like expands because it starts to buy up property all around the world, right? Like Google's sort of doing the same thing. Um, but those are like straightforward technology companies. Um, yeah, WeWork, man. Ugh, I don't know. Have you ever worked in a WeWork? Um, I have never worked in one, but I have visited many WeWorks, mm-hmm. and I find <laughs> I find the culture of a WeWork to be one of the most fascinating things about modern times, right? Like, they're these uh, spaces that are also fashioned after these giant technology startups, right? So they've borrowed a lot from the, the Silicon Valley playbook. Um, so you go into a WeWork, and there's often, like, you know, beer on tap, and there'll be, like, bean bags, and there are, like, you know, may- like maybe, like, whole WeWork happy hours. I read a great story earlier this year about the hookup culture in WeWorks because they sort of borrowed this Silicon Valley office style, but then it's like people who don't actually work together. Amazing. <laughs> anyway. Wait, they should have a dating app. <laughs> you know, what, you know we date. Just, we, oh my goodness. It's like the IAC of we. Yes. You're welcome, we. <laughs> what no, else is happening this all week? All right, all right. Let's talk about battery swaps. Maybe this is less exciting than we work. I don't know. This week, Apple responded to reports about a so-called lockdown on battery swaps on new iPhones. So here's what happened. There's a little bit of backstory here. Last week, a YouTuber named Justin Ashford showed how once he swapped out the battery of an iPhone XR with another new battery, one that he claimed was a genuine Apple battery, he noticed a service alert in settings on his phone. So why would this need service, he wondered, unless Apple was trying to potentially scare people off from swapping out their own batteries. Then iFixit, which is a computer repair company based here in California, and they're known for generally just tearing things apart and publishing information about parts, and sometimes manufacturers don't love this. Anyway, iFixit tried to replicate it. So they swapped out some iPhone batteries, surprise, they also noticed that these warnings appeared within settings after they swapped their own batteries. And they were they were like vague warnings too. Like it would say Apple is unable to identify whether this is a genuine battery or like could not read the health of your battery type thing. This is a sensitive issue and here's why. For advocates of the right to repair movement, they allege that big tech companies like Apple or Microsoft and others are essentially trying to prevent people from taking repairs into their own hands or going to so-called unauthorized repair shops. Um, Meanwhile, the tech companies say that you shouldn't necessarily take repairs into your own hands all the time because you could be working with a bum battery, you could puncture something, you could create a fired, you could just end up having a non-working product. Um, So we and some other outlets wrote about these mysterious battery notifications that were happening once people were swapping in new batteries and new iPhones, and Apple finally responded to Wired. So here's what Apple had to say. They said they take the safety of their customers very seriously, and they want to make sure that any battery replacements are done properly. They mentioned, of course, that there are over 1,800, you know, authorized service providers around the U.S. You can go to Best Buy now and get your Apple products fixed and all that stuff. And they said that the information around the battery is there to help protect our customers from damaged, poor quality, or used batteries that can lead to safety or performance issues. And they said the notification does not impact the customer's ability to use the phone after an authorized repair. So it's kind of interesting because what Apple is saying is like, yeah, you should technically be able to swap out a batter, a, you know, a new battery for a new battery or a slightly aging battery for a new battery, and it should still work fine. 
because they want to be careful to not be accused of locking down the iPhone. This is like taking your car to a mechanic rather than taking it to the dealership and having to deal with a check engine light on for the rest of your driving days. Like, that's yes. just annoying. Yes. Um, help me unpack that Apple statement a little bit. Like, what is Apple or, or other tech companies that are sort of uh, antagonistic to the right to repair movement? What is their concern with people making their own repairs? It's a good question, and it's probably worth noting that it's not always the tech companies themselves that are saying this outright. Sometimes it's lobbyists or experts on their behalf. We saw this at the FTC nixing the fix panel a few weeks ago. There were several hours of testimonies from people who are either for or against the right to repair movement. And you'll often hear security experts say things like, well, by hacking into your own gadget or trying to replace you know, the Touch ID sensor or whatever it is, um, you are potentially exposing yourself to vulnerabilities and hacks, and it's just going to be this heyday for bad actors. Or you'll hear from a battery expert who will say, look, like you may think that lithium ion battery pack that you're swapping in is just as good as the old one, but actually you don't know where it's coming from. It could be a dud. It could be damaged. You could, um, there could be thermal overheating. You could like create a fire. I mean, and the thing is, is that all of these things are in some ways technically true. We know that gadgets get hacked. We know that IoT devices are vulnerable. We've seen batteries in legit Samsung phones cause fires, right? So like that's not, that's not in correct in some ways. But there's also a lot of FUD, like fear, uncertainty, and doubt that's being sort of injected into the conversation, whereas the right to repair advocates are saying, hey, if I actually own this product, you shouldn't force me into this service loop where the only way I can actually get this fixed and not deal with like issues or the so-called voided warranties um, are just by going to your store Mm -hmm. because that enables the original manufacturer to like, you know, jack up the prices or set the premium for what that repair should cost instead of giving consumers a little bit of choice. So those are the arguments from both sides. Well, speaking of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, we have Natasha Tiku with us to tell us all about what's been happening at Google for the past three years. We will take a quick break and then be right back with Natasha. an audio clip from a Google employee walkout in the fall of 2018, one week after it was revealed that a Google executive had been given a $90 million payout even after there was a credible sexual harassment claim made against him. Natasha Tiku is here to tell us more. Natasha is a senior staff writer for Wired who covers the business and culture of technology. And her latest story is an 11,000 word cover story that dives into the culture of Google, what she calls the happiest company in tech, although that's not really the truth. Google's internal culture has been built up to mythical proportions over the past 20 years, helping to define what modern tech companies are supposed to look like. When people think of Google, they think about free lunches, massages, dry cleaning at the office, multicolored bikes and beanbags, 20% of your time being devoted to creative projects and moonshot dreams. In general, there's this sunny Silicon Valley portrait that's been painted. But that hasn't been the reality over the past few years, as polarizing issues that are now present on a much larger scale have seeped into the culture at Google. Natasha is going to tell us all about that. She joins us by phone from New York. Welcome to the show, Natasha. Thanks for having me. 
So Natasha, your story is this great TikTok of the internal chaos at Google over the past three years. And it begins in 2017 with a protest. Can you tell us a little bit about what the culture was like at Google back then? Sure. Well, if you remember, 2016 was the year that Mark Zuckerberg went on his, um, you know, kind of faux presidential tour. Like there was a lot of optimism about maybe tech CEOs being the ones to save us from Trump and, um, you know, kind of being these new CEO statesmen. And when, um, you know, Trump did his travel ban about like 10 days into his new administration and there was so much pressure. There was so much. It happened like on a Friday, uh, Friday afternoon. And over the weekend, it was this really tumultuous experience in Silicon Valley where um, I think employees who had spent 2016 kind of having faith in their leaders were hoping that they would kind of come out and be a little bit more assertive, you know, not kind of do their usual PR speak, um, you know, kind of come out and say that this is morally wrong. And that was you know, in a way, kind of Google's first big walkout. They organized in eight different cities over the course of the weekend. Um, and uh, in Mountain View, Sundar Pichai, the CEO, and Sergey Brin, one of the co-founders, actually got up and spoke, and people chanted their names. And it was uh, like a kind of a moment of unanimity. And it was also, as we discussed in the piece, the last time that happened. So Natasha, that feels like maybe it was a real moment where there were these external um, issues, social issues that were popping up. And yet Google, as a private company, I mean, in the private sector, was kind of expected to respond in a certain way. How did management handle that particular situation? And how did that set the stage for, in some ways, the problems that were still to come? Right. Well, Google is actually uh, kind of way ahead of other tech companies in terms of courting um, Republicans and sort of preparing for the tension that we've seen manifest itself um, during the Trump administration. And that's partly because they have been worried about antitrust concerns for a really long time. So they had kind of built up, um, you know, alliances with folks on the right, conservative people who might also share their sentiment that they should not be regulated. But Google was kind of quickly seeing with um, Steve Bannon and Breitbart that tech was being made into the enemy of the people in a way, right? Like it, it did not fare well under the kind of populist, the rise of the populist right. And so Google just wasn't sure what was going to happen. And it's the sort of instance, I mean, Google is, you know, ostensibly the most pro-immigrant um, tech corporations. Certainly, they've always espoused those views. Sergey Brin is an immigrant. Sundar Pichai is an immigrant. Um, in another administration, you could have expected them to speak out really forcefully. And I think, you know, over the course of the weekend, they weren't really sure what to do. But then Sergey Brin, um, without telling anyone, showed up at the protest at the airport. And it's sort of, you know, over the course of like 72 hours, they went from kind of a, a typical CEO statement, you know, talking about some of their own employees who got stuck with the travel ban and they got progressively more assertive over the weekend. They ended up giving $2 million to um, a crisis fund. And then, as I mentioned, you know, Sergey and uh, Sundar speaking out, although they were they were cautious. Like, you didn't notice it at the time. It just seemed like, oh, wow, Google is, you know, doing its Google thing and they're coming out on top uh, compared to other Silicon Valley CEOs. But underneath that kind of masked a lot of internal tension. 
Right. And that's sort of the last moment of unity that we get in your story is that that sort of moment at the top of 2017, because as you as you report, very quickly, we start to see these internal dialogues popping up on Google's internal social networks where employees are disagreeing, but in this way that's sort of beginning to fracture the company. And I just wanted to ask before we really dig into that, can you tell us a little bit about these internal social networks at Google and sort of what role that plays? in this broader story of the sort of chaos that's tearing Google apart? Sure. It's super fascinating. I think one of the things that really makes Google stand out from other tech companies who have adopted a lot of its other trappings, you know, the the perks, the benefits, um, the weekly TGIF meeting, but no one else has these internal social networks the way that Google does. They have thousands of mailing lists. They have them for... um, There's one called Industry Info that has like 30,000 people. Um, There's ones for conservatives, for militia, one called Coffee Coffee Beans for diversity, one for polyamory. Um, And people are actually very active on these networks. Um, You know, they're moderated just by whoever the person is who owns the, um, you know, the owner of of the mailing list. And that's another way where they kind of mirror the same troubles that we've been seeing with social networking platforms that exist in the real world. And of course, we all became a little bit more aware of these social networks internally when the James Damore, am I saying that correctly? James Damore issues came up, which you also cover in your story. We've had a little bit of time now to sort of digest that story, step back a little bit. Um, How are people sort of seeing that, that issue that came up now a little ways in retrospect? Yeah, I think, you know, when it was initially happening, we were all really thrown for a loop. I mean, first of all, um, manifestos coming from tech companies and, you know, making their way to the outside world, that was new for us. Um, You know, the idea that the far right would be watching Google so closely and kind of take up the cause of this one random engineer, that was also new to us. And um, it was interpreted at the time as Google's, you know, kind of liberal politics cracking down on this sensible engineer who was just asking questions and, um, you know, had some, as he tried to frame it, like scientific reasons for questioning whether or not Google should be trying to achieve gender parity, you know, 50-50 percent diversity in terms of its um, technical workforce and engineers. And I think what the public missed at the time was how often this debate actually happens inside Google. Um, you know, it's been going on kind of continuously since since about 2015, since, um, since Google really tried to make an effort to diversify its workforce. There is always somebody asking if this is lowering the bar for women or lowering, lowering the bar for black people or Latinx people. Um, this the kind of intensity of the response that you saw from Googlers on Twitter and, you know, once once the manifesto became public, it wasn't about James Damore, it wasn't about his memo, it was about, finally, let's have this conversation, let's really have it and see where Google is going to land. You know, they say that they're pro-diversity, uh, we want to see you kind of live those values right now. Absolutely. Um, Natasha, let's take a quick break. And then when we return, we're going to ask you more about this fracturing within Google and beyond. 
We're back with Natasha Tiku, who wrote the latest cover story of Wired all about the inner turmoil at Google. Uh, we've talked a lot about diversity issues, um, questions around immigration, uh, questions even around sexual harassment claims that have happened at the company. But we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about some of the projects that Google has been working on that have also um, caused tension within the company. One of those is a search engine in China, and another is uh, a defense contract, and that has been worked on under the name of Project Maven. Um, Natasha, talk a little bit about this because you did some pretty deep reporting on this in your story. Sure. So um, some important context is um, is the fact that, you know, Silicon Valley actually started out as a defense contractor. Um, you know, uh, some of the technologies that we use and love every day, GPS, even Google Maps, um, you know, it started out either with like exploratory defense department funding or um, the CIA's InQtel also supported a lot of those early technologies. But obviously Silicon Valley kind of far outpaced anything that the government was doing. But now with all of the advancements in AI and cloud computing, um, you know, kind of the relationship has become beneficial for both sides. So Google is in cloud computing competing with, um, you know, the big behemoth there is Amazon. After them is Microsoft and Google is third. And so one way for Google to kind of catch up with Jeff Bezos is to get these really big, lucrative Defense Department contracts. So that's kind of the the reason that this relatively smaller deal got so much attention. It's also because um, Project Maven, so it, it uh, will help the DOD label um, drone footage and use this kind of uh, train a computer vision algorithm so that uh, you know once the department kind of transfers to the cloud, they'll be able to analyze images automatically. So that means you know tracking people in real time, identifying vehicles, kind of making it almost like very friendly user interface you and I might be able to use, you know, clicking on an image, seeing everyone who's related to that person or that vehicle or what have you. And that obviously introduced questions, um, especially because it's drone footage about uh, AI um, weaponry and how exactly this technology will be used. But given the context that you just provided, which is this long history that tech companies have of, uh, you know, working with defense contractors, what was the real issue that was raised by these employees that ultimately made Diane Green, who was running Google's cloud business at the time, back away from one of those contracts? I mean, was it that they weren't told in advance this is what they're going to be working on? Was there was there a moral issue that came up? Like, what, what was actually expressed to be the problem? Right. So Google has about 100,000 employees. And, you know, as we've discussed, they have very strong political views. And so I think it's impossible to say that, you know, there was any kind of consensus about whether this is morally wrong or ethically wrong. But one thing that disturbed pretty much everyone was the lack of transparency. Um, you know, people who were working in, um, in the site reliability engineering had to build this, um, this thing called uh, uh, an air gap, you know, which is the kind of thing that like big finance companies or defense contractors want. And they they found out about Project Maven through being asked to build that. And when they tried to find information about it, which like is pretty easy to do or has been in the past easy to do inside Google because they have, um, you know, the kind of databases where people can easily look up information. When employees started doing that, 
um, Diane Green and other people in the cloud division started locking that information down. And that does not sit well with Google employees, whether or not they supported the contract. And then, you know, you kind of add into that all of the fears around um, how fast AI technology was being developed and how it was being deployed and the lack of kind of ground rules around that. And, you know, Google's response was to say, this is just the first phase of this larger contract. You know, we are principal people. We are one of the leading companies in terms of thinking about AI ethics and talking about it, but it just wasn't enough for employees. You know, they wanted some guardrails in place. They didn't think that Google's self-regulation in response to this one contract should kind of define how the U.S. thinks about AI weaponry, right? Right. And this sort of clash between the employees and management is something that is threaded throughout your entire story. There are so many little anecdotes that we don't have time to get into. Um, So I would, of course, encourage all of our listeners to read your fantastic, fantastic cover story. But I just wanted to ask sort of um, about what the effect of all of this has been in the end, right? So you talk about um, these sort of internal messaging boards, the internal polarization around things like diversity, the sort of uh, squabbles about these defense contracts. And there's this whole other issue around how Google deals with sexual harassment. Um, and I, I guess I just wanted to ask as a, as a final question, you know, after these three years of, of absolute chaos and clash, where is Google now? Like, what is sort of the sum effect of this been on the company? Well, I think that what we've seen over the past three years is actually how vital secrecy had been to Google being able to maintain that open culture. And now that the kind of... Um, like the vow between employees and management, which was which had always been like, you know, you let us speak openly, don't talk to the press, and we'll tell you like what's really going on. Now that both the left and the right are not trusting Google internally to do that, and are quicker to, um, you know, go public with their problems because they know that that's how to get a response from Google, it just really has turned the dynamic on its head. And you know, people say things like culture can't scale. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing right now though. You know, like how is Google going to be able to stick to its values um, with when they don't have the promise that it'll all stay inside. And that's gonna be especially tricky for Google because their culture has been a huge tool for recruitment and retention. You know, people, especially like young millennial employees, they want to feel like they're doing good in the world, you know, and they want to feel like they have some control over the projects that they work on. So it's not as simple as just, you know, in an ordinary company, right, they might just crack down on it and say, like, you know, fine, go somewhere else. Uh, But Google doesn't really have that luxury in a way. So uh, I I wish I knew what was going to happen, but um, I'm watching very closely. Natasha, I mean, I know that your story is is focused on Google, but based on other reporting that you've done, can you think of any other tech company in the Valley right now, or one that is as influential as Google, that is having similar problems? I mean, I imagine the broader political issues that are impacting all of us, um, both in the U.S. and on a global scale, are bleeding into conversations and happy hours and lunchrooms and everything at other companies too. But I'm wondering if any other problems you've seen or heard about are as profound? Oh, certainly. And it's actually kind of, in a way, trickled down or, um, you know, came uh, come from the grassroots on up faster than I thought. Um, you know, Google's culture makes 
employees kind of feel uniquely empowered to do this. And I know that, you know, early on in the Trump administration, employees from Amazon, some engineers had tried to, like, get them not to advertise on Breitbart or other things like that, and they were shut down very quickly. But some of the most fascinating protests that we've been seeing recently have come from Amazon employees and, you know, not their white-collar engineering staff, but warehouse workers in Minnesota, warehouse workers around the globe. And there is a small contingent of Amazon engineers who are trying to kind of build solidarity with them as well. Um, so the fact that it's happening there, to me, signals like that things are changing pretty fast. And, you know, some of the early kind of criticism of the tech labor movement was, you know, they're focused on their own concerns. What about the fact that these are the most powerful companies in the world? What about their impact on consumers? But I think that some of that was partly because um, labor law protects you from doing that. But now that the, you know, kind of the genie's out of the bottle, we've seen it manifest itself in so many different areas and well outside the tech industry. You know, we've seen the same sort of thing in, in like digital media, even in terms of unionization. And things are just changing so quickly. I think it's a really exciting time to watch workers try to exert their power in the market. Natasha, we cannot wait to read your future stories about Google and power in Silicon Valley. In the meantime, everyone can check out your cover story, Three Years of Misery Inside Google, the Happiest Company in Tech, which is Wired's cover story this month. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with recommendations. Okay, it's time for my favorite part of the show because I get to hear what everybody's been up to in our non-work lives. It's recommendations time. And Natasha, since you are our guest this week, would you like to go first? I would love to. So my recommendation, well, first of all, I should say this has been an extremely difficult week for me because I've been having to talk about Google, but what I really want to talk about is Schitt's Creek Season 5, an episode called A Little Bit of Lexus. Have you guys seen the show at all? No. I, th- I think I saw the very first episode in that because Mike recommended it at one point. But that's it. Tell us about it. Okay. It is hecka charming. It's on, um, there's four seasons for free on Netflix. And then this fifth one is on Amazon. And I, it's like the best 1999 that I have paid in a long time. Um, it's by, uh, the show's showrunner is Dan Levy, Eugene Levy's uh, son. And Eugene Levy is in the show and so is um, Catherine O'Hara. So, you know, if you've watched Waiting for Guffman or any of those type of movies, um, both of their faces will be familiar. And um, it's a really rich family who loses all their money and then has to go live in this kind of podunk town. And they're Canadian. Um, and uh, the daughter is, like I guess a, a socialite and ex-socialite and I was watching interviews with the actress she watched like old Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen Paris Hilton you know to kind of get the hand gestures and the Kardashians to to get all of this stuff down and she performs a song that um, she would have done for her like limited series uh, reality show and apparently it's like a hit actually on Spotify and played in uh, gay clubs across across the nation and I, I strongly recommend it it's the most charming thing I've seen in a really long time so we should listen to the song or we should watch the episode with the song? We should watch the episode. The song is actually done formally and the the performance on the TV show is bungled in the most delightful way. Let's take a quick listen. I'm a little bit of la 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 la. A little bit of Lexus. La 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 la. Oh, a little wow. bit of Lexus. Okay. Yes. La, la, Wonderful. Okay. That's awesome. That's great. Uh, <laughs> uh, Natasha, it sounds like we've got a lot of homework, which includes watching seasons one through four of Shit's Creek and then listening to this song. <laughs> 
Arielle, what's your recommendation? I would like to recommend a podcast, which is one of the most enjoyable things I've listened to possibly ever. Um, the podcast is called The Anthropocene Reviewed. And it is uh, hosted by John Green. You may know John Green for his literary works, such as A Fault in Our Stars and Looking for Alaska. He writes a lot of like teen summer love fiction. Um, But this podcast is John reviewing things in the world that he finds interesting. Um, And some examples of this are like a a recent episode was John reviewing air conditioning and sycamore trees. And he rates these things on a five-star scale Um, but just goes so deep and philosophical and gets into the existential questions behind things like our need to be air conditioned and the musings that a sycamore tree can give to someone who's thinking about parenting and death and mortality. It's truly beautiful, remarkable. Um, I've been listening to them on runs, which is not something I normally do when I exercise, but I find that it puts me in this really wonderful mind state where I feel full of curiosity and wonder and hope and John's voice is just so soothing you should all listen to it it sounds wonderful I've been looking for a new podcast so that sounds great it's really good um it's from WNYC and it's marvelous Lauren what's yours my recommendation this week is season three of Glow on Netflix. Glow, for those who are not aware, stands for the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. It's a show about a show about a show. I love meta shows. Anyway, <laughs> it's basically it's a show about a bunch of misfit actresses in LA uh, in the 80s who um, you know, were auditioning for probably more traditional roles. And the star of it is Alison Brie, and she's one of the two main characters. And um, they end up getting cast on this show about ladies wrestling and they have to train as wrestlers and they have these over-the-top costumes and personas and it's really fun and um, season three was just made available on Netflix. I admittedly have not watched all of season three yet but um, I've watched the first episode and a half and I'm sucked right back into it. I'm very into glow. Um, It does start off a little bit slowly and it starts on a little bit of a low note because um, the their new show in Vegas, uh, the launch of their new show in Vegas coincides with um, the Challenger launch in the US, which um, for some of you who are listening, maybe are old enough to remember. But um, yeah, and so I don't know, they're just great, great characters. Also, Mark Marin is on the show, (laughs) which is like, blowing my mind because I just realized it's the same Mark Maron from the podcast. I know I should have figured this out earlier, guys, and I didn't. But um, yeah, anyway, it's great. I recommend it. Good reason to subscribe to Netflix. Content just keeps on coming. So good. So good. Natasha, we're so grateful that you joined us on this week's Gadget Lab podcast. Once again, uh, for everybody who's listening, please, please go check out Natasha's cover story on Google. You can either pick up the print magazine or you can read it online. And if you happen to have hit your four-story limit, you can subscribe as well. But Natasha, we're really grateful to have you on. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Natasha, how can people find you on Twitter? Oh, um, my first name and last name together on the internet. It's very easy. Ariel, how can people find you? I am at Pardesoteric. Lauren? I'm at Lauren Good with an E at the end. And if you want to find all of us on Twitter, we're at Gadget Lab. And if you enjoyed this episode, or even if you have other feedback, please feel free to tweet at us. You can also leave us a review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it because we love getting feedback from our audience. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. 